going to begin this morning in verse 10. Paul has been proving his point to the Galatian Christians from the Scriptures. And isn't that important? At the end of the day, my opinion, your opinion, even the Apostle Paul, in as much as he's just a man, even his opinion doesn't really matter for a whole lot. But what the Word of God says, that's what's important. Now, Paul, as he wrote this letter to the churches in the region of Galatia, was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean just in a way that an a artist, a, a musician, a songwriter, a, a poet could write today and we could speak of them having a, a sense of inspiration. It could be a marvelous gift from God that God gives them. We're talking about something more when Paul wrote this. He wrote under the direct and powerful and unique and infallible inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But even in doing that, he calls our minds back to what God has already said. Take a look at it here in verse 10 of Galatians chapter 3 where he says, For as many as are of, of excuse me, I'll start again. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Paul's writing scripture, but he's also quoting scripture. Because what the Old Testament says is important. Paul says, I want you to see that the point I'm trying to make to you, that our ground of standing before the Lord is based on trust in what Jesus has done for us, not in our own works, but in what he's done for us. This is something confirmed to us by the Old Testament. So he brings up this quotation from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27, verse 26, which says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now notice who Paul's talking to here. Look at verse 10 again. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Paul would look at you this morning and say, Are you of the works of the law. Is that your ground of standing before God? You're not trusting in what Jesus did for you. You're trusting in what you can do for yourself. As we drew the illustration last week, you, know, you got like your, your attendance chart in heaven, you know, and you got gold stars on it and, you know, for good works. And, well, you came to church this morning. There's another gold star for you. Are you trusting in that chart or are you trusting in Jesus's chart, which is just like a solid gold star, right? So which one is it? Because, well, if you're trusting in your chart, what does the law say to you? Verse 10 there. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's strong words, isn't it? Well, you're trusting in the law? You're cursed. You're cursed. Why? Look at it there. Verse 10. Cursed is everyone who does not continue. Now, here's two important words. In all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The two important words I want to point out to you are the words all and the word do. How about that? First of all, the word do. You have to do the law. It is enough just to know it. It is enough just to like it. You have to actually do it. And how often do you have to do what the law commands of you? All the time. Now, how do we measure up here? All the time. In other words, you have to keep the law perfectly all the time. It's pretty simple, isn't it? You just don't sin anymore. 
And then not just that, I mean, I suppose that's not good enough, because even if you sin before, then you're still guilty under the law, right? So Paul says, this is God's standard. You have to do the law and do it all the time. Otherwise, you're what? You're cursed. Now, that's a word that sounds almost strange in our ears. We think of witches boiling some strange mixture in a dark cauldron, you know, calling down curses on people. You think of that snidely whiplash guy in the Dudley Do-Right cartoon saying, you know, curses, foiled again. Cursed? What does that mean? Well, curse is a very serious thing. It's a call for damnation. It's a call for evil or trouble to come against a person. And and we're cursed when we're under the law. We're not only cursed by our bad choices. We're not only cursed by this wicked world. We're not only cursed by the devil. But when we put ourselves under the law, we're cursed by God himself. Because we've said, well, I'll earn my way before you, God. I'll earn it. God says, no, I don't want you to earn it. You say, well, I don't care what you think, God. I'll earn my way before you. So Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, Paul says, hey, that says you've got to do the law and do it all the time. Now look at the next verse, verse 11. He says, but that no one is justified by the law on the side of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. In other words, Paul says, let me tell you another passage from the Old Testament, and I'll quote from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. And, and he says, the Habakkuk 2, 4. Did you know there was a book, Habakkuk? That's a funny name, isn't it? You don't find that name in the baby name books today, do you? Habakkuk was a prophet in the Old Testament, and his book is in there. And you look, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk 2, 4 says that the just shall live by faith. By the way, that passage from Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted three times in the New Testament. That's how important it is. God's just people, his righteous ones, that's what it means to be just. It means that God has declared you righteous. God has declared you good and approved in his sight. That God's just ones, how do they live? The just shall live by works. The just shall live by their good intentions. No. The just shall live by faith. That's how they live. And this brief statement is important because it says, well, if you're found just before God that is approved, you've done it by a life of faith. If your life is all about living under the law, then God doesn't find you approved. Because who are those who live? The just who come to God by faith. All right. Verse 12. He'll bring out another verse. He says, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Paul says, let me quote you another verse from Leviticus chapter 18, beginning at verse 5, where it says, the man who does them shall live by them. Now, if you want to live by the law, what do you have to do? You have to do it. Look at it there in verse 12. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Now, this is very simple, but very convicting. If you want to find life before God based on what you do for him, fine. All you have to do is keep the complete law of God and do it. Now, this is a place where so many people fail today. Not just fail in performing, but fail in their thinking. Because Paul isn't saying that you have to try to do it. He isn't saying that you have to intend to do it. He isn't saying that you have to want to do it. He says you have to do it. You have to fulfill the law. It's very easy to comfort ourselves with our good intentions. And sometimes I think this is the national religion of the United States of America. 
People think that God looks down from heaven and will justify us because of our good intentions. Because, well, you know, I I want to please God. I'm really a good person at heart. You know, I want to do the best I can. And we think that God looks down from heaven and will justify us because we try. No, it doesn't say that you're justified because you try. It doesn't say you'll live by it if you try it. He says, what does it say there? Verse 12, the man who does them shall live by them. Friends, your good intentions, it's not good enough. Your good, noble effort, not good enough. Your desire to do what's right, it's not good enough. No, only actual performance will do. Otherwise, where are you? You're right back at verse 10, you're cursed. So, how does that leave us? Okay, let's go through the checklist. You have to do the law, right? Not just intend to do it, not just want to do it, not just uh, feel like you want to do it. No, no, you have to actually do it. Okay, well, do we do the law? No. And then you go next. Well, uh, you have to do all the law. Continue. Well, all the law? No, I don't even do all the law. Then you say, well, um, am I walking by faith or trusting my works? Well, I'm trusting my works. Well, where does all that leave us? Cursed before God. Cursed. The effect of Paul's use of Scripture in these three verses, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10, 11, 12, it's overwhelming. We understand that we don't actually do the law. We understand that we don't actually do all the law, and we understand that this puts us under a curse. So how about that? That's how we sit all together in this room, cursed by God. Then comes verse 13. Look at it. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Isn't that exciting? This is how we sit. We sit cursed. Cursed because of our sin. Cursed because of our rebellion against God. There we are. We're in that position of being cursed. And then Jesus Christ comes along and says, I want to buy you out from the place of being cursed. That's what it means to be redeemed. Redeemed means to be bought out. Now, somebody could be rescued, right? But the idea of redemption has more than the idea of being rescued. It means being rescued at a price. Somebody paid a price to bring you out. As if you were going to rescue somebody from the slave market and you buy them out. Have you heard about, there are some places in the world today, some places in Africa, where people are being sold into slavery today. And I hate to say it, that many times Christians are being targeted as being sold into slavery. It's something deplorable in our world today. And some people have said, well, the way to stop this is we need to go out and and for the $100 or $200 that it costs, we will buy that person's liberty and then set them free. You go to the slave trader and give them the $200 that they're requiring, and what's $200 to us? Well, it's really nothing. But what's that $200 to that person who's sold as a slave? That's their life. They're set free. They're no longer a slave. Now, some people disagree with that practice because they say, well, you're just putting money in the hands of slave traders. But at least you get the idea, right? The idea is that person was bought out of slavery at a price. Well, friends, that's what Jesus has done for us. Look at it there in verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. There we were. We're all set under the curse. And now Jesus Christ redeems us. He buys us out of that place of being cursed. Here's the good news. In Jesus, we aren't cursed anymore. I mean, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12 left us under a curse. But now we're not under a curse anymore. Jesus bought us out from under the curse. Now, how did Jesus do it? 
How do you buy someone out from a curse like that? Look at it. It tells you here in verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. This means that Jesus became cursed on our behalf. Did you see those two critical words in verse 13? Those words, for us. Became cursed for us. Now, who cursed him? I'm sure the devil cursed Jesus on the cross. We know that his enemies cursed him. Can can you just picture that sight in your mind? There's Jesus hanging on the cross. He's hanging in between two thieves, right? There he is. And the very people he's being crucified with are cursing him. Then there's the passerbys, the religious leaders, the religious leader of the day. They walk back and forth among the cross and they spit on Jesus and they curse him. Can you hear it? The Son of God doing the most holy act of love that this earth has ever seen and he's being cursed by the lips of men as he does it. Now, is that the curse that Paul's talking about? No. He's not talking about being cursed by the devil. He's not talking about being cursed by men. Who was Jesus cursed by as he hung on the cross? He was cursed by God the Father in our place. You say, but Jesus didn't deserve that. You're right. He took what he didn't deserve, what we did deserve. And he said, Father, take that curse that they deserve and put it on me. I'll take that curse. That was the horror that Jesus really dreaded on the cross. But he endured it. And he endured it for us. Far be it from me to tell you to cross out a word in your Bible, but look at verse 13, where it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse law, having become a curse for us. Why don't you circle the word us and write right next to it, me. Can you say that? That he became a curse for me. Now you know what that means. It means you deserve the curse, doesn't it? but he took it for you. Many people never get to that first point because they never think they deserved a curse. But you have to say, no, I deserved it, but he took it. And how did he take it? Look at it there, verse 13. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There is Jesus hanging on what's symbolically called a tree, that wooden cross that has branches, so to speak, that lays upwards and outward. And as Jesus hangs on that tree... Paul calls in another verse from the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he calls in the verse of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And I'd say, that's interesting that that would be in the Old Testament. Because, you know, in the Old Testament, they never practiced crucifixion. Crucifixion was largely speaking, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. It wasn't around in the days of the Old Testament. Then, Then how can it say, cursed is everybody who hangs on a tree? Because... Hanging on a tree was thought to be the ultimate disgrace in the ancient world. Now, we don't think this way. We think differently in our day and age. But in the ancient world, they thought that there was a thing worse than death. Worse than actually dying was dying and then having your dead corpse humiliated and desecrated before others. They thought that was a fate worse than death. You and I today, we might say, hey, who cares? You know, I don't care what they do with my body after we die. But in the ancient world, they thought differently. 
And so they thought that the ultimate disgrace, the ultimate curse for a person was not only to die, but they would take that dead corpse and, and hang it up on a tree. Or as they did with Saul, if you remember when he said at the end of 1 Samuel, they took Saul and they chained him to the walls of the city of Jabesh, excuse me, of Bet Shean, and they, they took that, the, him hanging up there on that wall and, and they did that as a symbol of ultimate disgrace, of ultimate desecration of Saul in his memory. Well, God says, here is a picture of a person who's been completely and utterly cursed. And now, now I want to free you from that curse because I cursed my son on that tree. Friends, Jesus not only died in our place, but he took the place as the cursed of God being hung on a tree in open shame and degradation. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough for any one of us to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. I deserve the curse, and you took it from me. Thank you, God. You know what? That's not all, though. God isn't even done. God's not even done blessing you. Because look at what it says in verse 14, I should say. He said, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, friends, it's not only a matter of Jesus taking our curse, but now he gives us a blessing. Wouldn't it have been enough if he just took away the curse? But now on top of that, he adds the blessing of Abraham onto it. And Jesus gives us his blessing on top of taking away the curse. And so now we're blessed with believing Abraham, as long as it says there in verse 14, as we are in Christ Jesus. That's the important point, isn't it? Being in Christ, not in yourself, but in Christ Jesus. That's your identity. You're in Jesus. You're not in yourself. You're not in somebody else. You're in Christ Jesus. That's an important phrase there. Now, in verses 15 through 18, Paul's going to sort of come at this at another point. And basically, even though the wording in verses 15 through 18 is a little difficult to understand, He's speaking about the permanent character of this new covenant that God's making, that it's unchanging. Let's follow his thought through there, beginning at verse 15, where he says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. In other words, when men sign a contract, it's good, right? I mean, it's solid. It's secure. That's supposed to be a bond. Well, if that's how it is with men, how much more with God? Look at it there, verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as to one and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise." What Paul's doing in these verses, he's contrasting the fleeting nature of the law of Moses and the covenant with Moses and the more permanent nature of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And the basis that he says is basically, when God made the covenant with Abraham, it was just God and Abraham, right? And it was a one-sided covenant. There was no negotiation. There was no deal. It was just God said, I'm going to do this for you, Abraham. There it is. It's a promise. Now, with Moses and the children of Israel, when they made a covenant with God uh, in the pages of the Old Testament, it was a two-sided covenant. And what Paul's simply trying to say is we have a more permanent covenant by faith, a more stable one, one that's unchanging in its character. Now, it'd be easy for somebody at this point in the letter 
to think, Paul, you sure trash in the law a lot. You know, you must not like the law of God very much. There you say, we can't come to God by the law. It's, you know, you must think it's no good. You're always criticizing Moses. Now, Paul wants to correct that thinking right here in verse 19. He says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Paul's saying what the strength and what the weakness of the law is. First of all, the law was added because of transgression. You know what the great things about the law of God is? is it shows us God's heart and it can keep us from sin. It can keep you from sin. I mean, knowing what the law is there and knowing that God keeps his law, it can prevent you from sinning more. And isn't it a good thing to sin less? Now, it doesn't mean that the law justifies you. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Right now, you're going to go home and many of you are going to hop on the freeway. You're going to go, and there's a posted speed limit on that freeway, isn't it? About 85 miles an hour, right? <laughs> now, what's a posted speed? Is it 55? Is it 65? I've got to confess, I don't even know what it is in this stretch of the 118 that I drive all the time. But let's just say it's 55 miles an hour. That's a posted speed limit, right? Now, that law is a good law, and it's given for our safety. It's given for our protection. It's a good law. Nobody's going to say, well, no, that's a bad law. We shouldn't have any speeding laws, etc., etc." No, people say the law is good, it's fine, it's given because of transgression. Now, if you keep that law every day of your life, if you're good and if you help that and you do that, great, wonderful, fine. But it still doesn't justify you before God, does it? In other words, it's a good law, but it's not your standing of justification before God. Friends, that's what we need to understand about the law of God. The law of God is great. It's wonderful. It's just not our place of standing before God. Nobody is here trying to say that the law is useless, that it's worthless, that we don't need the law of God. We need it. We want it. We need to be instructed by it. But, but it's not our grounds of justification. Or let me illustrate it this way. You got money in your wallet now, don't you? Well, you got money, and, and there you go. There's the money in your wallet, and, and is that money good for something? Well, sure, it's good for something. You're going to buy lunch with it afterwards. You're going to use it. That money's good for something. It's not worthless. It's good for something. But, but, that money doesn't justify you before God, does it? Of course not. I mean, you don't think being justified before God is by laying out all the money in your wallet, especially with some of our wallets here this morning, pretty thin. But you know that, right? There's no doubt about that. So just because the money doesn't justify you before God, it doesn't mean that it has no value. Same way with the law. The law doesn't justify us before God, but it certainly still has value for us. Now, in the same way, if you take a look at what he says here in verse 21, here's the weakness of the law. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have come by the law. That's the problem with the law, is that it doesn't give us life. It tells us what to do, but it doesn't give us the power to do it. I can lay the rule sheet right in front of you, right? Here's the rules. You've got to do them. You've got to keep these laws. You've got to keep all this. Now go out and do it. But if you don't have the power to do it, what good is it? That's how it is. Now, when Jesus Christ comes into our life, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
He comes and he breathes his life inside of us. And you know what that does in our lives? It gives us the power and the ability to walk after God's ways. And now we can please him. Now we can walk after his ways. Now we can fulfill the the commandments of the law in the freshness of the spirit, in the power of the spirit, instead of the deadness of the letter. And that's how we obey God. In a beautiful, beautiful way by the life of the spirit. And so now in verse 22, Paul's coming to a beautiful and a powerful conclusion here. Take a look at it here. He says, but the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Did you get the picture Paul's painting here? Did you see that word in verse 22? Confined. That's the picture of imprisonment. Paul's picturing a prison cell here. And the bars of that cell are sin. You have your own little prison cell, don't you? Right on the bars of that cell, it's sin, and it's keeping you locked in. And who's the jailer? Who's the guard walking by? Who's the person who puts you in there? Well, it's the scriptures. It's the law. Look at it there, verse 22. He says, the scripture has confined all under sin. Sin's the bars. And you're inside of there. The scriptures put you in there. The scripture looked at you and said, look, you're a sinner. He said, I'm not a sinner. And the scripture proved it to you and said, look, you see you're a sinner. You don't measure up to God's holy standard. You need to get in this jail. And there you are. You're imprisoned. The bars of sin are there. The law, the scriptures, they keep you in there. So there we are. We sit imprisoned by sin. And the law can't help us because the law put us in this prison. So what do you do? Well, some people try to decorate the jail cell and make it as nice as they can. You know, it's a designer jail cell. And man, I'm going to be comfortable. It's all beautiful. Look at this. Look at the drapery. Do you like what I did with the iron bars around my window there? It's just beautiful. Some people try to act as if they're not in a jail cell. They live in a fairy tale land. Oh, they talk. They live. They're like this. like they walk around. They live in an imaginary world. Filled with imaginary friends, imaginary places, imaginary freedom. Because they just tell them, I'm not in a jail cell full of sin. No, and I'm not bound by sin. No. And other people say, I'm breaking out. We're getting out of here. And so they get out the saw of their own good works and they try to saw through the bars and it won't work. More of that file and the birthday cake, it's going nowhere. They can't escape. They're locked in. Now, some of you may object. You may say, well, wait a minute, I'm no prisoner to sin. Well, let me see if I can't prove to you that you're a prisoner to sin. One simple test. that This pretty much works for everybody. If you want to prove that you're not a prisoner to sin and never have been, simple way to prove it, don't sin. Just stop sinning. Now, that's pretty simple, right? Let's just do it. For the next week, we just won't sin. Not in any way. We won't sin in what we do. We won't sin in what we don't do, right? In every way, we just won't sin for a week. How about that? Any takers? How about if we just said, for the rest of the day, we won't sin? (laughs) How about if we said for the next 15, 20 minutes until we dismiss? I mean, friends, you can't stop sinning. And I don't say that against you. I say it to myself, too. That's our problem, isn't it? I mean, if this was so easy, if we're not bound by these bars of sin, then should just stop sinning forever, for the rest of your life. Well, we should be able to do it. Human beings can accomplish amazing things, can't they? We can send uh, men to the moon. We can send rockets to Mars. 
We can do amazing things. Why can't we stop sinning? The human will is an awesome thing. You ever see a triathlete? And there they are, you know, they, they've swam the two and a half miles. They've, they've uh, bicycled the hundred miles on the bicycle course. And now they're running the marathon to cap it all off. And there they are, a hundred yards from the finish line, they collapse. But they have such will, such drive, that they literally crawl and drag themselves, scraping and bleeding over that finish line. You say, this is a triumph of the human will. This is a triumph of the human spirit. Surely that person could stop sinning. No, they can't. You see how bound we are by sin? So here we are. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Imprisoned by the law of God with the bars of sin right in front of us. Well, look at it there, verse 22. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's how you get out, by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, you see the warden walking by, right? Forget the guard. You want to talk to the warden. And the warden, first of all, wants to know that you really know that you're in a jail cell and that you deserve to be in there. That's the first thing you've got to tell the warden, isn't it? I know that I'm in a prison cell, and I know that I deserve to be here. There's a story about a man a hundred years or so ago who was walking through an English prison that had deplorable conditions. And as he walked up and down, this man was a big political figure, and he had the power to pardon people if he wanted to. And as he walked down, all the prisoners cried out to them, and he said, you know, uh, I'm in here. And they said, well, why are you in this prison? They said, well, I was framed. I don't deserve to be in here. And the guy in the next cell, well, get me out of here. Why are you in here? Well, I was framed. I, I never did it. I was caught wrong. And down, everybody, nobody deserved to be in there. Funny thing. And finally, he came upon one despondent man who just sat down in his cell and his head, his head in his hands. And he said, well, what about you? Why are you here? He said, I, I committed a crime and I'm guilty. And I deserve to be in here. And instantly, the politician cried out and he said, guards, Get this man. I, I won't have this guilty man corrupting the rest of these innocent people in this jail. Get him out of here. <laughs> well, it's the same way with us, isn't it? We, we've got to be able to admit we're in the jail cell. We deserve to be in there. And then the warden says, well, will you trust me to open the door? He takes a look at the saw and the file that you have in your hand, right? He says, put that away. All the things you've done to decorate your jail cell, he says, clear that out. He says, let me open the door, and he turns the key, and he opens the door, and you just walk through it in faith. He's done the work. He's opened the door. Then as soon as you walk out into freedom, the, the prosecuting attorney comes along. He's the devil, and he says, well, he doesn't deserve to be out. He's guilty as anything. There's got to be a payment for what that man's done. And the warden turns around, and he says, I paid it. I fulfilled his sentence. I paid the penalty. He's set free. He's wide open. Friends, when Jesus Christ sets you free, that door's open and it'll never be shut again. Never. Now here's the problem, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this in, in your own life. Even though the door's wide open to our prison cell by Jesus Christ, sometimes, for some reasons, we just have a propensity to want to go back there and kind of live in our cell for a while. Oh, the door's open, we're free, we can walk out any time. But still we live under the bondage and in the environment of sin. Jesus Christ wants to set you free. He says, I've opened the door. Come out and walk in the liberty that I've given you. 
I see Christians, there they are, the, the door's wide open. Jesus Christ has opened the door wide open, and there they're, they're back in their cell decorating. They're back in their cell filing away at a bar. And you say, look, the door's open, walk out. No, no, I like my filing work. Put it all away, put it all away. I like the story of a couple of men in medieval Europe, what's nowadays Belgium. They were brothers. One was named Reynold and the other was named Crassus. And these brothers fought back and forth for an area of ground, which one would rule as a duke over the territory. And Crassus was in charge, but his army was defeated by the army of his brother Reynold. And Reynold didn't know what to do with his brother. So he said, well, what am I going to do? I'll, I'll, I'll throw him into prison. But no, I don't want to seem cruel. So he devised a very ingenious imprisonment for him. Up in the tower of the castle, he constructed a room up at the top, and, and he, he put Crassus in the room, and he built the door after he was in the room. And the door was of near normal size. Not quite normal, but nearly normal. The problem was that Crassus was a very fat man. Matter of fact, that's what the name Crassus means in Latin. It means fat. And he couldn't get out of the doorway, because he was so fat. I mean, there was no lock, no guard, no anything. He could just walk out if he could just diet down to a size that could walk out of the door. We say, well, that's no problem. You just diet down. No, you know what his brother did? Every day, his brother sent up good food and plenty of it. And the guy just kept eating himself big. And he could never get out even though he wasn't locked up at all. Sometimes people would come and accuse the brother of cruelty. You're imprisoning your brother. He said, my brother's a free man. He can leave that room anytime he wants to. But he never did leave. Not until his brother died. See, my friends, you can be set free by Jesus Christ, but imprison yourself. So isn't this an important word to us this morning? Jesus Christ has set you free. Some of you need to see Jesus open up that jail cell for the first time. This is your morning. Admit that you're locked up in a jail cell full of sin and ask Jesus to come and by faith trust in him and his work to open up the door. Others of you, he's opened up the door. You just need to walk through it and stay out of that cell and live in the freedom and the liberty that Jesus has given you. I suppose there's a third category of people. You are free. You're not living in the cell. The door's wide open. Well, I think you need to go around and tell the other prisoners on how to have a jailbreak. How the warden can come and set them free if they'll just trust in him. Let's pray together and ask that God would cement these things in our heart. Father, we do ask that. I want to pray for three different groups of people this morning, Lord. I want to pray for those who are still locked up in a prison cell of sin.